0: Welcome to the LSE events podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences.
1: Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this LSE public lecture. I'm Chi a professor in the Department of Statistics here. I'm very pleased to welcome our distinguished speaker, Professor Sir Debbie Speakhard and Dr. Anthony Must. We have audience in this room as well as as perhaps more online. May I remind everybody, the session is recorded. The recording will be available publicly shortly after the event. Before I introduce our speaker, let me say one or two words about the agenda today. First, as usual, we will have a presentation from our speakers for about 45 minutes. No, less. Less, okay. Followed by open Q&A for audience, both, both in person and online for about 10 minutes. This will formally conclude the session, but we do have one item, which is uh, after the event, you probably have noticed, I carefully placed 10 copies or nine over there, the book over there. Because of all the pandemics, we cannot have usual sign and sell events after the talk. I remember five years ago, I will talk to David, maybe five years ago when his book, The Art of Statistics published, he did a similar talk in the same forum. After the talk, the queue for sign and sell is very long. Yeah. So, the book, that book, The Art of Statistics, became one of the best selling items in the Penguin series. I think probably it's the only statistic book made to the, uh, the best selling series. Um, for the main agenda today, it's related to something which is very close to all of us. Since the early 2000s, we have all experienced or suffered from this dreadful COVID pandemics. Being in this information age, we thought we are very well informed on what's going on, what's going on because the data in big quantity, on various forms published by various agency, institution, or some enthusiastic individual keep pulling on us every day. Even for a statistician like me, myself, it's really difficult to keep a clear head above the bigger data scene. Ladies and gentlemen, we are very fortunate today, have the best people, I say with the confidence, the best people to help us make sense from data out of this senseless disasters. Professor Speakhart is a fellow of the Loyal Society, former president of Lloyd <laughs> Statistics Society, the chair of Winton Center for risk and uh, evidence communication at Cambridge. He has stood out during the pandemic as a calm voice, authority for using the data, together with Dr. uh, Dr. Anthony Masters, Statistic Ambassador from Lloyd Statistic Society. Yes, I didn't make mistake. His official title is Statistic Ambassador. They have made a tremendous contribution and service to the society by analyzing data in the most relevant statistic way, interpret, interpret the results comprehensively to the general public, and even educate the government hold the government to account. For example, they just give finished a talk to MP this afternoon, yeah? Without a further ado, let's welcome David and Anthony to present their talk, COVID by numbers.
2: Can you, can you hear me all right? Oh yes, that's working all right. Thank you very much for the kind introduction. Very, very generous indeed. And it's a great pleasure for Anthony and I to be here. Um, just a bit of background that, that um, you know, I started working with Anthony through the Rural Statistical Society and because he had volunteered as an RSS ambassador to help put together some FAQs on the RSS website about, you know, what is the R number and, thing, and stuff like that. And then I got asked to do an article in the Observer and uh, I did one and then thought, um, oh, God, I can't keep on doing this. So I asked Anthony to help me and we ended up doing 50 articles last year. Um, in the Observer every Sunday. It's quite a challenge, 350 words. You try to explain, you know, complex Bayesian arguments in 350 words with no pictures and no maths and really no numbers. Anyway, we, um, we struggled with that and, uh, and it was good. And then because we were getting on so well and these articles, these articles were going so well, we uh, negotiated this book with Penguin as part of their Pelican series, a sort of teach yourself series that I grew up with, these blueback books. And that's, and that's what this ended. That's what this ended up with. Okay, so that's the background. And um, the idea of the book is that, and we'll, we'll plug it around the book. But we also we'll take questions about anything to do with the stats of the pandemic. I think we're very happy to do that. Um, is that you know as it says up it there, it's to be readable. It's in this sort of autodidact tradition of Pelican that I grew up with. Um, it is mainly about the UK, and then even then mainly England and Wales using the ONS data. And um, again, it was a challenge. You know, I don't know if you tried, you know, many of you would have, might have tried writing sort of about fairly technical matters to a non technical audience. At least we had graphs in this one. We, I mean, there's lots of graphs. It's our main, but no maths, but lots of graphs. And that, and actually, you find that's enough to, the, the, as we'll get on to, the main, some of the main statistical problems of COVID are not to do with complex statistical modeling and technical ideas. They're basically to do with, what do you actually mean by a COVID death? You know, what do you mean by these things? It's just, just actually working, what are you talking about, is, is a huge element of this, as we will as we'll be clear. And we ended up with about, just as we ended up writing 50 chapters without much overlap, I think we ended up with 26 chapters in, in uh, the 50 articles. Um, the 26 chapters, basically quite short, on all these different aspects of of COVID. But we should emphasize it's not a critique of government policy, and it's not, it can't be in depth. And we do keep away from the sort of blame and speculation that the media coverage of COVID, COVID has focused on. I mean, I've done a lot of media, COVID media, and you know that they're going to ask you if, unless you try to stop them. Well, you know, what do you think should be done? Or what do, we, you know, what do you think was wrong? What mistakes have been made? And what's going to happen in six months' time? I haven't got a clue. Absolutely no idea. I'm not going to start blaming anybody. So we try to take that regard as something that many statisticians during this pandemic have, I think, on the whole, pretty well universally, stood back from this taking sides on what should be done. And I'm really proud of that as a sort of professional approach that we've been dedicated to try to explain what's going on without saying what should be done. So the structure of the book, you realize, good, once you start thinking about it, you know, every aspect of COVID is numerical and statistical. Everything is numbers from you know the virus, how big it is, and then how fast it spreads to diagnoses and cases, and then you've got whole testing business, what is a case? You know, a CT number and all this sort of stuff. Then you've got, do people get ill? And how ill do they get? And how many get in intensive care? And then deaths. And this huge amount of deaths that we know about. What is a COVID death? What are access deaths? And so on. And then then that is only just starting with the you know, the thing that people ask, well, what's the effects of masks? What's the effects of, of um, lockdown? What's the, everyone's obsessed with the effects of different interventions. Um, and how people reacted to it. And then we, then we get on to vaccines, you know, effectiveness, side effects, blah, blah, blah. And then we get on to looking forward, epidemic modelling, uh, and so on. So, you know, it's just a staggering range of statistical ideas. And it, and it is used, you know, all our sort of background, you're using, if you're for dealing with COVID, you end up using every single sort of statistical tool that you've ever done through simple use of the Bayes theorem, complex modeling, and adjustment, of course, logistic regressions, COX analysis, vaccine efficacy. Everything is being used um, behind the scenes, even if we don't talk about it much. Okay. Just I'd just like to before I pass over to Anthony, just like to talk a bit about sort of the daily dashboard. I mean, to be honest, the daily dashboard is stopping being so interesting now, they increasingly the number of positive tests is going to bear less, you know, not a great relationship to what's really going on in the population, because especially when people start having to pay for them, uh, you know, already, you know, by looking at positive tests, you're looking at the people who choose to get tested. That's it. And we know that as a rough rule of thumb in the past, if you doubled the number of positive tests, you roughly got the actual number of infections—it wasn't bad, which we know because of the COVID infection survey run by the LMS. But this is London, um, since last autumn, rumbling along, you know, fairly quietly, and then Omicron comes along in London much earlier than elsewhere. Absolutely hit. There's a staggering increase up here, sort doubling, doubling every couple of days, you know, for a fairly brief period, and then, and then being, you know, over height, and then dropping down. And um, we're now actually. We're becoming, as I said, less and less sure of what's actually going on. Um, it looks, I think it looks like actually you know, there's a strong suggestion among older people that cases are going up um, around the country, possibly largely due to the waning vaccines, um, even the booster's waning by now. When did I have mine? I'm old. I mean, I'd mine quite early. It's probably you know it's probably withering away now, my lovely booster. Um, but, it, I mean, the, the other thing to remember is, this is just cases. If we look at, you know, who's got antibodies, um, you know, around the, which we only know from the COVID infection survey, um, half the kids in the country caught COVID during, during this wave. So more than 85% of kids have got antibodies now. You know, either of the younger kids, primary school kids, the ones who are now have an option of being vaccinated, um, nearly all of them have had it. So you, you know, the marginal gain of vaccination now is probably pretty low. Okay, so um, and if we look at deaths, again, you know, this is this definition of deaths that you get on the daily dashboard. Again, we're not hearing these numbers every day. Partly because Ukraine has pushed COVID out of the front page. Also, because, you know, actually, how interesting is this anymore? Also, because this is an increasingly unreliable indicator of people dying from COVID. Um, this, again, is deaths within 28 days of a registered positive test. So you've got to register registered it, which increasingly people won't be doing, um, and including recorded reinfections. And it also includes, of course, people who um, die of something else within 28 days of a test. Normally, that wasn't a, a very big um, effect. But increasingly, there's about 30% now we have to take? Yeah, yes. Around about only about 70% of these are people who actually die will end up having COVID on their death certificate. And an even smaller proportion will have it on COVID, on, because only two thirds now will come onto this of, of COVID deaths on the death certificate are registered as, as being caused by COVID. Um, otherwise, just a contributing factor. So actually, you've got to halve this roughly to get deaths caused by COVID. So these numbers have to be taken to now with a huge pinch of salt. But of course, as we'll see later, you know, they were really high numbers earlier on. And of course, you know what's happening in Hong Kong and et cetera, is just extraordinary now. Okay, I'll pass over to Anthony. We're just gonna just those just up, you know, the, the dashboard, all these numbers we see every day. That was about London. Let's we'll just look at some of the stuff in the book now. Yeah. Because we did, you know, we wanted to try to make it entertaining. So we picked on deliberately, as he's going to show, things which we thought were quite interesting. yeah. You know, just actually slightly surprising. So here's some yeah, so surprising here's,
0: things. Yeah, here's some surprising uh, facts from the book. So uh, often we hear about the R number, the reproduction number, sometimes wrong, the reproduction rate, uh, which is... Basically, the average number of people that an infected person goes on to infect. So, on average, for instance, in the initial strain, you might expect one person to infect three more people. But that's an average, and actually, the distribution, uh, as suggested in a uh, work on open research paper, was that roughly that of negative binomial. So, so you have most people don't infect anyone, uh, whereas uh, you know you have lots and lots of uh, cases where people go on to infect, you know, like 10, 10 15, 20, 20% of people. So actually, uh, the spread of COVID 19 is being, uh, you know, as it were, sustained by uh, these kind of super spreader events where, you know, lots of people gather and so on. Uh, and, you know, even if you then adjust the mean to account for, say, uh, the dominant variant at the time, I think it's for alpha. Uh, yeah, you, you still end up with uh, you know over six and ten people not going on to infect other people. Uh, there was also this massive uh, difference in risk by age. So as a as a rough approximation, uh, being infected it would you know in the early stages of the pandemic would be roughly equivalent to adding uh, doubling your risk of death. Uh, in that, in that year. So, over 90s uh, had 35,000 times uh, the lethal school risk of children, and that's for England and Wales. Uh, you also had that the average, in this case, the median age, which is where, you know, if you order everyone by age and pick the middle, uh, of people dying from COVID 19 is a roughly the same average age as other causes. That does not mean uh, that these people would die anyway, as we'll see. As we see later, there there are some analyses which suggest that you know the mean average uh, uh, years of life lost was was about ten, but, but as you see, like the distribution is really important. Uh, there's also uh, if you look at uh, younger people, so those aged between 15 and 29. So uh, congratulations to anyone here who falls in that particular category. Uh, in 2020, there are over 300 fewer deaths in England and Wales uh, within that category if you compare that to the average uh, from 2015 to 2019. Uh, and that's, that's including the 115 deaths that involved COVID, so either as an underlying cause or a contributory cause. Uh, and, and there are various reasons for this. Uh, so for instance, national lockdowns meant that, uh, you know, it was less traffic, uh, less, uh, you know, other respiratory diseases were suppressed, and and basically, uh, society as a whole became less risky, uh, and that that meant as a as a whole, uh, the pandemic and the measures against it were actually a net lifesaver for young people in England and Wales. Uh, that doesn't mean necessarily that you know all those measures were a good thing. This is just a statement of fact. Uh, now. Alcohol consumption, as, as measured by uh, surveys and uh, ta- tax returns and so on, uh, in 2020 showed a small fall compared to previous years uh, in Great Britain. Uh, there was some suggestions, I think, at the earlier uh, at the start of the pandemic, that you know, we would all drink ourselves into a stupor uh, watching Prora on ICP3 because we're so bored. Uh, that didn't really happen. Uh, also, the estimated number of drinking days was similar. So, see, uh, but the number—if you look at the Alcohol Vision Survey in England—it was the number of sessions uh, that was going down. So, as in, well, if you're not going out to drink, you can't really do pre-drinking. You're just drinking at that point. So, pe- so people were, uh, <laughs> so so people were, you know, you know, not doing multiple drinking sessions in the same day. I mean, you know. See, I haven't got anywhere to go. Uh, viruses take indirect flights, uh, so uh, what? What we uh, this is based on looking at uh, sort of, as it were, the full genomic sequencing of the virus and going. Okay, well, that version of the virus that's very similar to that one. So we think actually that person probably infected that person uh, based on the specimen dates, uh, and then you can, and then looking at. Uh, you know, cases that had non-word transmission. So these are kind of like seeding uh, events within the United Kingdom. And what you see actually is, of those that were recorded, uh, most of these came from Spain, France, Italy. Uh, you can see actually, you know, quite a large, large spike uh, in from uh, Spain near the time of the Liverpool Atletico Madrid match. Uh, so there was uh, possibly a lot of importation events. Uh, relating to that football match, and to our Dinsault century, Liverpool lost. Uh, the, so there is the huge collapse in international travel. Uh, what's surprising here is just the sheer scale of it, uh, very unfortunately being slightly uh, slightly hidden at the bottom uh, by that marker. But you can see actually, you know, there were around maybe 9 million or so uh Visits abroad by people living in the UK, uh, you know that that's you know that very sharply you fell. Know, there was just the collapse as the pandemic came round. So, you know, countries lock, lock themselves down. Uh, you know, just the collapse of tourism. Uh, and as, as I mentioned earlier, uh, there was uh, social distancing and the other measures. Uh, yeah, they they dampened uh, the spread of SARS CoV two. But you know, nearly wipe out other um, other respiratory diseases. So, if you look at, for instance, flu, uh, so you can see uh, that you know the sheer scale. First, firstly, thing to note: uh, this is for the uh, latest winter uh, in England. Uh, you can see that the uh, COVID line is just you know blows pretty much flu outside the water. There, there isn't a replacement effect here. You know th- this is just one disease being massive, uh, but you can also see the sort of continued suppression of uh, influenza, and yeah, you know, this is the point where I, th- I think we we're having trouble drawing this uh, for last, last winter in the book because people were, uh, you know, pe- people looking at the line and thinking it's the axis, uh, you know, is near zero. Uh for for influenza, you can see also that again it's very much near zero for hospitalizations with influenza as well. You know, again, being completely outscaled uh by uh, COVID-19. Uh, and should I pass on to you for mental oh, yeah. health? I'll do mental health, right? Yeah,
2: yeah. I mean there's it's run just go back. The things that Anthony was showing, there's a couple of good statistical points there. The first one, which runs through a lot of this, is the, as we as, you know, statisticians get accused of being obsessed with averages, the enormous limitations of of averages, which we're going to see even more. The fact that, um, you know, talking about the average number of people infected, where almost nobody infects the actual average number of people, either a lot less or a lot more. Um, the average um, you know, uh, risk of COVID, death rate from COVID, which varies so unbelievably hugely according to people's age. Um, so again, the average is almost a pointless figure to quote. Um, average amount of alcohol is roughly the same, but it also looks like the, vari- the variation increased. So actually, the, the, the people who didn't drink much stopped drinking, and the people who drank more drank more drank even more which actually increased the, looks like it increased the overall harm from alcohol because the high drinkers drank even more. So the average could stay the same in terms of consumption. But the actual harm could increase because the spread increases. So this, I mean, we know as statisticians that the spread is unbelievably important, the variability. And, um, and so, but this has brought it home to me so strongly again and again. Enormous limitations of average. And this is, I suppose, another example, because this is just average mental health of the population. ONS asks people each week, tens of thousands of people, how satisfied are you with your life nowadays? And the dashed line is February 2020. So throughout the whole period, um, we've got less satisfied. How happy are you? Your happiness took a big hit in last uh, winter after Christmas was buggered up and everyone was stuck at home, and generally that was really rock bottom, and also at the very start of the pandemic. But um, happiness, wouldn't be too bad. This is not overall how anxious did you feel. Anxiety, you know, still well ahead of normal levels, of, of baseline levels. You know, these figures of high and anxiety at the beginning, very high indeed. Um, and so, you know, what we're seeing here, and again, you know, huge variation around these figures, some people... Are still terrified of COVID, I think, and staying at home and not wanting to go out. Others are that much more, much bolder. But on average, we know the anxiety in the population has increased. And this means a measure like this, this means a, a huge, much more pressure on mental health services is going to be by that, by that increase in average. Um, Now, this one, I mean, this is a graph that comes out every week, so Anthony's redrawn it, um, from ONS. And you know, there's so much story in here, it's untrue. Because this is basically the number of deaths registered in England and Wales each week. Um, There's dips because this is registrations on bank holidays, the office is closed and you can't register. So that's purely an artifact. Um, The blue are deaths without COVID on the death certificate. The red are deaths with COVID on the death certificate. Now, that could mean... As, a, as the underlying cause. And, and in most of this period, that's about 90%. So nearly all of these are COVID, are caused by COVID. It's a bit different now, but in, um, as I mentioned, but then. Now, so this is the first wave. It was, the year black is, is 2015 to 2019 average. So the, the year started off quite well, actually. But look, it, then the, it absolutely hit us then. Massive, double the normal death threat numbers of deaths. Normally, it's about fifteen hundred a week in the country, in England and Wales. Um, no, fifteen hundred a day. Normally, it's ten thousand a week, and there were twenty thousand a week at this time. Um, um, but look at that chunk. Is that blue chunk? Is interesting. Excess non-COVID deaths. These were these were COVID deaths, and so you know, these were old people. These were people in care homes who, you know, special dispensation was given that they did not have to have been seen by a doctor over the last couple of weeks. Um, they, could, they could fill in the death certificate without seeing the patient, um, and, uh, and many would, did not, because especially with older people, the, the symptoms of COVID are, are not generally as representative as others, and, um, and they didn't want to put COVID on the death certificate. But these were COVID deaths. So we're even counting our COVID deaths as an undercount of how many COVID deaths there were. Then, then a completely different picture in the second wave, a huge deficit in non-COVID deaths, far fewer non-COVID deaths. We've already seen one reason why no flu at all. Normally, we'd have ten to twenty thousand deaths from flu in each winter. None. I mean, really, just like it's been eliminated for two years now. What that means for next winter is, you know, is very could be very concerning indeed because we've lost two years worth of immunity to flu. No flu. Also, some what's called mortality displacement. Some of the people who would have died here died here. The deaths were brought forward by eight months. Also, that's known by this awful term harvesting, which is, you know, Google it, it's an official term, but one we tend to try not to use, but you might hear that term. Mortality displacement, deaths move forward. And then you can see here, obvious mortality displacement here, this deficit of deaths here are people whose deaths have been brought forward by a few months. Absolutely, just as you'd see after a heat wave or a cold winter. So you see a dip, you see a lump of that, then the dip due to the mortality displacement. Um, what's going on here? Now, um, we're below average. This is a bit controversial because they changed the baseline. And uh, instead of being up, all through here, the baseline was 2015 to 2019, five years pre pandemic. Here, they used 2016 to 2019 and 2021 as one of the five years. But we know what happened in 2021. That happened. So these are actually contributing to this baseline. And uh, which is, uh, you know, people have rather objected to that. Um, but even so, even if you don't use that baseline, we are operating less than excess deaths at the moment, you know, with negative excess deaths at the moment. So it's, I you know, in respiratory disease, deaths from respiratory diseases of all kinds, including COVID are lower than they were in 2015, 2018, 2019. So um, it's actually safer for people now than it pre-pandemic, if you suffer from a respiratory illness, if you're vulnerable to respiratory illnesses. It's safer now than it was during the pre-pandemic. Don't get that message very much. Okay, so um, this is is something, again, which I personally felt has not received enough attention, even though some of us have been banging on about it for two years. Where do people die? Um, And it's this top corner here. Look at that. Deaths at home. This is excess deaths. Um, deaths at home have been running at one-third, a thousand a week extra, which is one-third extra than normal throughout the entire pandemic. These aren't COVID deaths, and there's no sign of it changing whatsoever. They, there's, there's been a, a systematic shift in where people are dying. People aren't going to hospital or you know, to die because they don't want to, because they're not being sent or whatever. Um, now, the, the interesting thing, as I said here, is that stats... Can't tell you whether this is a good or a bad thing. You know, it looks like it's not extra deaths. That, that you know, this is just a, a largely a, where people are dying. Could be a good thing if there is good end of life care being you know at home. We don't know. So that I think that's um, again a, a systematic effect of the pandemic. Okay, and just a final one on on mortality, Um, people have said, or did say, oh, you know, COVID, It's in the big run of things, it's not so important. Why have we made all this fuss? It's not that big in the big run of things. Um, Actually, it is quite big. Um, I mean, this is just the crudest. This is just counting the bodies. How many people have died each year since 1900 in England and Wales? And um, this, this is 2020, and that's 1918. Does it? Oh, the warriors. This is only deaths in domestic deaths. So deaths in service don't count. Um, So the army aren't the services aren't in there. But you know, this is uh, it's been the highest year since 1918. Now, of course, things have changed since 1918. In particular, the size of the population has changed. And if we look at this number, which adjusts for the um, population size, which has been uh, the mortality rate has been dropping. Um, just as a rate per 100,000. And then you saw this big spike in 2020, which was about 20 years, you know, which brought us back to a, a general mortality rate from about 20 years previous. This, uh, this line is staggering. We don't really... Age, if we allow for age, the difference in the age structure of the population, death rates have halved since I was born, 1953. Well, it's incredible that death rates have halved since 1953. I mean, which is quite extraordinary. I mean, I mean, that's why life expectancy has been going up at three months a year throughout the whole period. Every year, you know, every year we've been aging, we've only been getting nine months older because life expectancy is going up. And I think, isn't there some mathematical thing that means we'll never die because it'll always move ahead of us. So, so um, yeah, so that we've only been aging nine months each year, which is very nice, um, except then suddenly this big spike but that only took us back about 10 years, 10, 13 years. So the death rate in 2020, that enormous spike, when you allow for age, it was only the that was what death, the death rate was 10, 20, 10, 15 years ago. So in the grand run of things, 2020, it, it's a spike, but it doesn't stand out in the whole of history. But it's certainly huge compared to what it should have, would, would have been otherwise, what you'd normally expect. So context and comparison is absolutely vital. Just saying, ooh, you know, so many 50,000 people have died from COVID, it sounds terrible. We have to do, think of it in context. But this shows, actually, it was terrible. This is really was a, a retrograde step. So I'm going to pass over to Anthony. So I do, I'll do this one, the death one, yeah. Um, oh, no, I'll do I'll do the next two. Yeah, yeah I'll do the next two. Okay, so this, was, this dates, I mean, I don't know if you remember this because it went a bit out of fashion, but September 2020, There was was a big accusation that it was a case demic. There were lots of cases, and this was just because these were false positive tests, or um, and these weren't wasn't really a virus. Now that was no. As the winter went on, it was shown to be completely wrong. Um, But um, the the there's a big accusation, especially during the summer, and that was the summer of Eat Out to Help Out, um, that all these tests, positive tests were false positives. Well, you know, mathematically, there's something in it. And so, you know, we it's a Bayes' theorem argument that if you look at the people who test positive, um, the proportion of those that really are positive depends on the base rate, how many people, how much virus there is in the community. So if there's not much virus around, that um, the proportion of positive tests that are false positives will be will be very high if there's not much virus back. So it's picking up, of the people it's picking up, more of them will be false positive. That's not the case once there's quite a lot of the virus going around, it all flips, where false negatives start becoming important. So and the, the point is that, all oh, this went on and on and on, arguments backwards and forwards. But the, the clinching argument, I think, was when ONS, with their survey, COVID infection survey, when they just measure everybody, when at the absolute rock bottom of the virus during um, August 2000, in the first year, very little around indeed. Um, they did two hundred eighty-eight, two hundred eight thousand PCR swabs, and only got one hundred fifty-nine positive tests. Now, even if those had all been false positives, that's quite possible they were. <laughs> yeah, they might have, they might not have had any at all. It would still mean that the specificity or you know, the, the false positive rate was only 0.08%, you know, a really tiny figure. Um, so 99.9%, so only one in a 1,000 people who were truly negative were testing positive. So that puts an upper bound on it. So we know that specificity would be more than that. And um, so those sorts of you know, natural experiments, just testing, in, only by doing a survey could you ever find that out. And that gives us confidence that, in fact, um, when there's more virus around, that these are not all false positives. Okay. And just to finally do, oh, God, how many times in the last two years have we spent talking about deaths with or from COVID? But it's important, actually, that's not good language, the deaths with COVID. There are three different types of COVID that you could have COVID deaths. Um, when, if you look at, think of deaths on the death certificate. There's, there's COVID. Where someone has got COVID and it's gone down as the underlying cause, actually caused the death, maybe through a chain of other things. And that's death from COVID. Then you've got uh, where COVID is on the death certificate, but as a contributory factor. It's not the main. It's not the, on the main cause, but it, it, you know it, it may have speeded along. It didn't. It didn't help. As it contributed, and that would be a death you might call it, involving COVID. But the real deaths with COVID are the ones where it's not even on the death certificate. And now there's a lot of those, where people had COVID, they got an infection, and then they died of something else. And the COVID really wasn't involved in any, I mean, the obvious one is the being run over by a bus. But even with other things, where COVID just wasn't anything to do with it. And that used to be quite rare. But now is a lot more common that, as I said, these deaths within 28 days of a positive test, it never appears, you know, never appears on the death certificate. 30% of those never even appear on the death certificate. So there's three levels, you can, you can die with COVID, and then there's three different categories you can be put in. So no wonder it all gets complicated, but crucially of the deaths that get on the death certificate for most of the time, nearly all of them, nine in 10 of them have been with COVID as the underlying cause.
3: Hi. I'm interrupting
2: this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy.
3: LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for
2: LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event.
0: And the last one on these is. Yeah, we, you would hear it as a constant drumbeat. Oh, well, COVID is just the rebrand of flu. Uh, with the suggestion that, you, you know, it's, it's actually no more lethal. Uh, that's untrue. Uh, so risks uh, with influenza and COVID-19 very hugely according to age. Uh, if you look at rich countries before the vaccine, uh, modelling by uh, Imperial College London suggested that uh, the infection fatality rate for those countries would be on average uh one point one percent that places it well above uh seasonal influenza uh you also have um yeah you know, as we' were saying you can stratify that by age and you find out actually the the gap as it were is particularly large uh for uh you know older more at risk age groups and that that was a that that analysis was done i think in october 2020. it Things have somewhat changed since then. So you, know, you now have vaccines, uh, there's, a, there's a lot more uh, survived infections, and there's also changed in the virus as well, like such as the Omicron variant. Uh, but COVID is more lethal than the flu. So just, just to finish off, uh, I, th- I think we should think about what statistics mean when you hear them in the media. Uh, you know, there are different types of statistics. It may come as a count from some administrative system, what could that count be missing? Uh, you know, if it's a survey, that or a model, then that's producing an estimate. What are the sources of uncertainty in that estimate? Uh, then you also have to think about distribution. Quite often, we're presented with averages, uh, when actually the distribution underlying that average is particularly important. And as you say, like for instance, with alcohol consumption, uh, the average may stay the same, but if your light drinkers are uh, becoming teetotalers. And your heavy drinkers are becoming even heavier, then the, the amount of harm from alcohol can increase, even if the average alcohol consumption stays the same. Uh, and uh, so, these so graphs were from uh, a paper showing years of life loss estimates. You can see that actually, uh, you know, the suggestion that actually, oh, well, you know, lots of people would have died, you know, in a, in a year or two anyway. Uh, you can actually see there is, is quite a lot. Uh, a lot of people estimate it to be in that category, but it's also a very long tail. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, children do die uh, of COVID-19 and, of course, lose huge amounts of central life. Uh, and so what you see is when you take the average as the mean, uh, then you get an average of about 10. Whereas if you were more interested in perhaps the mode, uh, then it would be more like zero or one. Uh, and then the median would probably be around four or five. But you can see different types of averages, uh, you know, can lead you to perhaps different conclusions. So, always think about the distribution. Uh, and also, as I was alluding to earlier, thinking about the uncertainty. Uh, so, in statistics, there's uncertainty over the past, the present, and the future. Uh, you know, in, for instance, these scenario models, uh, you know, there are, there are a huge number of unknown factors. And perhaps if they, if modelers were trying to, you know, truly account for the entire spread uh, of different factors, then you'd probably just end up with massive fan drafts that go from basically nothing to, uh, you know, total catastrophe, uh, to which, you know, policymakers would probably respond with, uh, well, what is that? Uh, so, so the, yeah, remember that the scenarios, like, uh, like examine uh, particular assumptions, uh, and sometimes those can be pessimistic, sometimes those can be optimistic. Uh, but you got to think about presenting the uncertainty and, and so on, in, in, the, in these figures. And uh, I think that's it, uh, any questions?
1: Now we open the question to follow yes. Uh, could you please introduce yourself, name and affiliation?
3: Pierre-Antoine Boulard, member of the public. Thank you very much. Uh, I have a question, many questions, but one of them would be, as statisticians, do you think the COVID, um, the pandemic, has uh, improved the knowledge of um, public influencers, maybe politicians and and media, and the public comprehension of what simple numbers mean and how they should live their life according to them? Thank
2: you. Okay, I'll have a good answer in that as long as I can ask you what you think as well. Um, that's such a good question. Um, I'm not sure what answer you think. We, we get asked this quite a lot. I, uh, I think the media have improved. Uh, I think the standard of data journalism has been has been good. I think the you know right across the mainstream media, um, you know the stuff in the Daily Mail. There's been a lot of graphs and they've been quite thoughtful sometimes of what they've done. And um, so I, I think the media have d- made a good job of it on the whole, on the whole. Um, it's difficult to know whether the public, what their response has been. There's certainly been an appetite for numbers, I think, um, in terms of the interest that our articles have got, you know, people listening to more or less and, and the demand of the auditors for the briefings, the comment and, and of because, I mean, I can't use, I use Twitter all the time, but it's not, a, of course, that's not a representative judgment. But so I think there has been an appetite for numbers. Now, in terms of the actual understanding, that's difficult to know. And, um, well, you, know, you know, our talk has just shown, me, it just banged home the, some really basic statistical messages about what are you actually talking about? You know, what are you counting? What do these things mean? About the importance of variability and the importance of uncertainty. That's what we, you know, everything has been on there. Um, I kind of hope some of that might have got through, that numbers are not just facts that tell you exactly what's going on and certainly not tell you what to do. that element of judgment, of care, of interpretation, I kind of hope that's got through without people just saying, oh, well, I don't believe any of these, you know, without that, because it'd be disastrous if it, you just had a, a complete cynicism. Um, but I think that people have realised the absolute importance of the number. We do have to know, understand what's going on. But that you need to be pretty cautious about what you're told. Do you
0: think that's... Is that... Yeah, 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 I think so. Like, uh, yeah, it's important to stress that uh, knowing what the risk is doesn't necessarily tell you to, what, what to do with, with that like you have to uh you obviously have to make your own judgments like like different people will be in different circumstances so like for instance if you were uh you know working in quite a uncertain job with like low hours then your propensity to go i work and afford to take the day off work because uh, I, i've got a positive test may be somewhat different to like an office worker so yeah, I think, I
2: mean, we, or, you know, always say, you know, the numbers don't speak for themselves. You know, we have to interpret them. Do you think things have got better or do you think, are you, have you got like any optimism about the public understanding of stats? I,
3: I was um, concerned, you, you mentioned change of baseline. I was concerned by the fact that we, we also started, and um, we, including the politicians, um, started counting different things. If you think about it at the beginning would be, Death, then hospitalization, then all of a sudden cases yeah. for some obvious reasons because yeah. everything else was doing the right way, but cases yeah. weren't. Yeah. When the case indicator became completely meaningless with Omicron, then we went back to hospitalizations. Yeah. Now, have we have, had we looked at hospitalizations throughout with the distinctions that were made in the in the last period about what are actually people hospitalized for? Yeah. Yeah. Then I think the the, the communication and the response from the public would have been very, very different. I,
2: yeah, I mean, that's a good point. And that the, um, once cases stopped being so, people were going through, people did look at the hospitalization with a lot more sophistication. The fact that half the people in hospital now with COVID, they're not in hospital because of COVID. Um, they either were found to have it much later or, or caught it in hospital. That's the other the very large proportion as well. There's, those numbers were always available if you looked carefully, but they weren't promoted very much, is absolutely right. Um, so yeah, I, oh God, it's very difficult to predict what's gonna happen. I mean, I kind of hope that there will be more, people will pay more attention to the numbers in the future, but there may be, I kind of think a bit of skepticism is quite reasonable, not cynicism, but a bit of skepticism is not such a bad thing,
1: yeah. Okay, a gentleman over there. Thank You?
0: Uh, My name is Joshua Loftus. I'm an assistant professor here at LSE. (laughs) (laughs) You might be able to to hear from my voice that I'm not from the UK. So I lived uh, during the first year of the pandemic in the States and then
1: since moved here. And I've been really struck by the difference in the quality of data available because of the ONS survey. Um, And I think as a
0: statistician, that that random survey is really like an informational treasure that the whole world uh, can, can learn from. And so I wonder, do you agree
1: that the random sampling really is like a extremely important uh, treasure, and should other countries learn from the example of the UK and the US?
2: I have just been talking to the chief statistician of the country, sri Ian who's just been hosting a delegation from the US to find out all about this survey. And it is enormous pride, it's expensive, 400 million pounds a year, it will be less in the future, but it is going to carry on in some form, very expensive. But they set it up in April 2020 very rapidly because there was this complete infrastructure already set up that it could be just put on top of. In a week, they had it going once they had the guaranteed funding to do it. And it it has been extraordinary. There's not the only difference with the US, though, in terms of the data and that, you know, basically the US dashboard had to be put together by volunteers, you know, that this was, there wasn't that because of the different states all doing different things, there wasn't somebody bringing all this together. So we've been very fortunate, not just the ONS, but the Public Health England and UK HSA dashboard, which now is going to be, I think, lowering its profile, but was an extraordinary achievement as well. And we got four countries all doing different things which have to be put together. So um, I, I, I think, um, yeah, I'm, I'm quite, I think that the UK has got quite a lot to be proud of in terms of its eight institutions. It's not perfect in any way at all, but in how it's handled the data and how it's communicated the data. Um, yeah, I think there is stuff for others to learn. I mean, I'm not saying our stuff is perfect, but it's been pretty good. And, and and it's been got out there. The dashboard has got an API where you can download the data. People writing their own graphics, and, and the people I follow or influenced by are independent researchers on Twitter who are just getting all the data and doing their own analyses and putting their stuff up there. And i you know those are the ones I follow and and learn from the independent analysts.
1: Yeah. But this suggests at least in the earliest stage, we didn't make a good use of data. Well, it wasn't the data wasn't there to like that because
2: they weren't testing anybody. The, as you said, the COVID death certificates were not very reliable. Um, and everything was being delayed. And so the data was very poor to start with. People were struggling to make any sense of it. Um, and the, that was when at that early stage of the pandemic, that's where the case data is is particularly valuable, the testing. And when nobody was testing, we had no idea what was going on, absolutely operating in the dark. So only later when that slide that Anthony put up showing, you know, in late February, early March, there's vast numbers of, there were a thousand separate outbreaks in this country from people coming back from France, Italy, and Spain. Mm-hmm. So the the, virus, the pandemic erupted almost simultaneously right across the country. It's terrifying to see it as an animation, which is totally different from other countries where it was strong, focus in some areas. Here, just because everyone goes on holiday yeah, comes back, breathes over everybody, woof, off it went. The whole country caught it at the same time.
1: Should we check on yeah, our no. question, please? Okay,
2: sure. OK, but can you hear
1: me? No. no. Sorry. Check <laughs> your microphone. You? Mm. Is that better? Yes. yes, yes. 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 OK, yes, a very large, large audience and a lot of uh, oh, questions for me. Um, just to start with one, um,
3: who is the best place to give the final tally of deaths from COVID nineteen? Oh, I think i could answer that. <laughs> uh, what the best place to get get
0: them? Uh, I, yeah, I, I would say statistical officers. Like, like most likely in the future, we're going to look at uh, deaths where COVID nineteen was an underlying cause, rather than uh, those uh, those deaths where it's a contributory cause. Uh, but yes, like like in in even for that figure, that that may be an underestimate in some countries, depending on uh, the propensity for doctors to uh, pay it on the death certificate, like particularly early, early in the pandemic. Uh, but, but yeah, yeah, the yeah f- figures, you know, uh, published by uh, you know health departments and uh, public health agencies, uh, you know, like if you're doing an international comparison, they, you know, they all depend on on different. You know, you have different tests, uh, testing assays. You have different testing eligibility, uh, different amounts of amounts of testing, uh, and then that all then affects uh, the death uh, the death measures, which often depend on people having a positive test. And you know, you have some countries only counting those and hospital, some count, uh, you, you know, some counting also counting deaths at home. Some uh, you know, some including also suspected deaths where there isn't a positive test as well. Uh, yeah. Yeah, as I recall, there was a lot of uh, head scratching uh, early on in the pandemic about how badly Belgium was doing. Mm. Uh, but if you went onto the Science Samo uh, website, uh, you you would find that they were also including suspected deaths, unlike many of the other countries that people were comparing them to. Mm. Uh, so I would, I, I would say, stats officers, with with the proviso that it may be an underestimate due to uh, kind of underreporting early on.
2: Yeah, I mean I think there'll be two I think in the future there'll be two metrics, one which is deaths from COVID, which will be underlying cause, and the other will be deaths from the pandemic and measures against it, which will take into account of eliminating flu yeah. and things like that. So and that would be the excess death and yeah. excess death calculation. And they're both interesting, they're, they're different. And they mean both, I think. Um and uh but the excess ones also takes into account, allows for different registration systems. Yeah. So that's really just a terrible phrase. You're counting the your body, you just count the deaths mm-hmm. and then compare with what you
1: would have expected. Yeah. Perhaps one more question from Allah. Yes, it's yes, yeah. uh, Another question. This talk illuminated the position on COVID and deaths. What about morbidity as well mortality? Have there been studies of um, survivors in COVID yeah. and
2: particularly long COVID?
1: Uh,
0: yeah, yeah, there, there have there are starting to now be uh quite a few studies on uh long COVID. So uh, yeah, just to explain to uh people in the Orleans, that's basically when people uh suffer. It's a post-infection syndrome essentially. So people suffer continuing symptoms despite uh having nominally recovered uh from from the virus. And that there are uh, there are numerous analyses now on how prevalent that is, and it's, it's trying to see if, like for instance, there's a biomarker or, or something like that that you could test for, uh, or, or you know rely, uh, relying on people you know saying that oh yeah I'm continuing to suffer uh, this and I don't think it's for any other reason. Uh, uh, yeah. Yes. No, I, I mean, I think it's going to be, that is going to be a continuing
2: interest. The recent paper suggested about, you know, in terms of effects on the heart of the after COVID infection. So I think that those, and, and I mean, the, the long COVID is often associated with, you know, people who perhaps weren't that ill, but then have a continuing effect. But the one that I think the strong data is for people who actually were were quite ill with COVID, hospitalisation, how they do, people and a large proportion, a substantial proportion are not restored to normal health factors, So they're long-term effects, which some of which of course will be due to the treatment as well. So I think that, that this will be uh, you know as we move forward um, will be of big statistical interest but a really difficult statistical problem because of what do you mean by, you know, by um long-term effects of COVID? Yeah.
1: More questions here from audience Yes, please. Yeah. My name is Alice Hughes. I'm a member of the public. Uh, for the future, um, for the next time, we want to learn what, it, what interventions worked and which didn't. Uh, we've had a bit of an experiment as between England, Wales, Scotland, and Northern Ireland. And I'm wondering if uh, there are lessons that can be learned and whether the people in those territories actually had better experiences or worse experiences than England? And if so, would England have um, done itself a favour by subdividing itself regionally and having different interventions in different parts?
0: Well, there was for a bit. There there, there was, uh, you know, like the kind of regional tier system, uh, uh, which uh, certainly in late 2020 didn't seem to have that market effect on... Uh, dampening uh, dampening transmission uh, I, I i would i would I would say is that uh, you know the, the estimates that you're gonna get from these studies are going to have a loss of uncertainty yeah. and actually if you it, if if it seems precise uh, then it's precisely wrong uh, <laughs> the uh, so 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 essentially you know as it were the proper way to do this would be to. A, you know, randomize uh, different countries. Of course, no no, no countries ever agree to that. They, you know, no one wants to be in the control group uh, for um, uh, for a COVID intervention like that. Uh, so essentially, you have to work from observational analyses. And of course, lo- lots of interventions happen at the same time. Mm-hmm. So so you know, governments you know continually pile on things. And then you also have uh, the fact that members of the public uh, adjust their behaviour before because they think a You know, some some intervention, like, you know, national lockdown is coming. So, so they so actually start uh, changing their behaviour beforehand uh, and, and things like that. So it, uh, and es- essentially there, there, there are so many variables that you end up with, you know, comp- credible confidences will like, you know, this big are on this, which, you know, th- those sorts of studies may be helpful for ruling out, uh, saying, well, we can't say that this intervention had massive effect, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, you know, may, yeah, yeah. May, it may help. Yeah, it shouldn't guide you as to like the precise ordering of. Oh well, that you know, doing masks is better than you know putting hand washing uh, tools uh, you know out, outside every every location or making people do a COVID test before they turn up uh, to to events and so on.
2: Uh, I yeah, I agree. I mean, without experimentation. We're just not going to know with any levels of precision. As Anthony said, one of the main things, the fact that it's not obvious that there was differences between the and you know, we can't say, oh, well, that's clearly that this had an effect, a bigger effect, um, means that it's going to, to try to say, oh, well, we can use fancy statistics to do this, I think is, is pretty well doomed. I think in terms of broad brush, I mean, if you look at Sweden compared with other Scandinavian countries compared, then... That you might be able to say something, but again, it's a is what we'd call a sort of pragmatic intervention. That it's so tied up with the human response, to the behaviour, you can't say, oh well, if you did, you can't then predict, oh, if we did this, this is what would happen, because it's specific to the place and Swedish culture is very different from other cultures. Um, and, uh, and as Anthony said, in the end, the thing that is people's behaviour. That changes everything. Everything is just influenced by behaviour, and that's what has the influence. So it's how do you manipulate people's behaviour? Is, is then the crucial thing? Um, and uh, I think that's a very difficult issue to explore um without doing some very some real experiments. And none of those have been done. I, I think it is going to be the whole thing of you know what's the marginal gain of making something mandatory rather than voluntary. I didn't realise that in Scotland. You know, isolation after a positive test was never legally binding. It was only guidance the whole time. So, I mean, it just that's quite an interesting thing. Again, because that suggests that unless they've got a massive difference, that actually the difference between mandation and strong guidance might not be that large. So there's people will be looking at this forever. Um, and as Anthony said, the thing is don't believe it when someone comes up with a precise answer. <laughs>
1: Uh, for the interesting time, last question online, yes, online. This is quite a good one to end with. That's uh, what do you think is the single
2: most misunderstood statistic about (laughs) COVID? Oh, god. Um, I I think the repeated one is the daily deaths, Mm. but on a on a Tuesday, mm-hmm. <laughs> daily death on a Tuesday, death saw way up.
0: Always mean- at least double what is on Monday. Yeah, yeah. E- evening, yeah. The evening standard, for instance, oh. has has used the headline "death saw" so. uh, like at least four times yeah. uh, when it's the it's it's the reported figure. So basically, there's a reporting cycle. Uh, because you know, few few people in in hospitals say to notify the system the system that they have of these deaths, uh, then you you get a catch up on you know administrators come back in on the Monday, which then gets published on the Tuesday, so at four four p.m. on Tuesday, deaths or death, 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 death rising. Uh, and so on, yeah. and this is people comparing, uh, you know, this is people comparing it to the previous Monday. Where of course, that will relate to administrator levels on the Sunday. Uh, and fewer people work weekends, uh, so it's just a very clear reporting and cycle, and, and
2: and, and, and it, still it still happens. As it's still going happens. on. You just can't. Oh God. <laughs> I bet the evening standard,
1: but maybe it stops saying deaths. <laughs> so, I think yeah. probably that's a good point to end our <laughs> formal session. <laughs> we still have lots of things to learn. Let's thank the speaker for that <laughs> fascinating. Thank you.
0: thank you for listening.